Hello and welcome to Think Like an Owner. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with Jerry Joe from Hood & Strong. What is a quality of earnings report? So for most business acquisitions, if the buyer is going to be working with a bank or have investors come into place, typically what they look for is that there is a third-party analysis being done on the business. And primarily is to be able to verify that the financial statements that are presented are true and accurate for the bank to be in position to underwrite the transaction. And so we generally think of a quality of earnings report as an audit in, in some way of the company's financial s- statements. But it also brings in additional value in the sense that it's not just merely verifying the company's financial information, but it's also in many ways looking at the quality of the underlying revenue, the earning profile of the business. So what we're looking to is, is one is verify the financial statements that they're accurate. And then two is the, the quality of the underlying revenue, the earnings profile of the business. And oftentimes there's uh, ABEX that is pro- provided by management in terms of non-recurrent expenses, personal expenses in nature, which is actually pretty common in the smaller business the lower to lower middle market, just because you know, the financial statements are typically not not being audited. So it does come with a different risk profile. And so the part of that quality of earnings exercise is to be able to determine the, the type of expenses that is not going to continue on an ongoing basis. And this re- report that we put together is basically would would give the, the economics of the, the revenue the expenses on a normalized basis and the earnings on normal normalized basis from which we calculate a adjusted EBITDA. And depending on the type of business that we have, this could also include other components that would include working capital analysis and certain areas depending on the deal, the transaction itself, there is some coverage around the tax diligence and the tax exposure that relates to the business that the buyer should be aware of. And the report itself is going to be provided to typically to the lenders and to the investors for their decision making in terms of what the earning profile, what the EBITDA is for the, for the company. Awesome. Thank you, Jerry. To learn more about Hood & Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com for more information. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now for the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at A.E. Bridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a quarterly print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. 
If you run a small company today and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. My guest in this episode is Maytab Bogle, co-founder of Carta Ventures. Carta is a Canadian-based e-commerce acquirer investing primarily in e-commerce turnarounds, a corner of the world I didn't even know existed, but that is incredibly fascinating. This episode was one of my recent favorites because of Maytab's ability to share high-level insights and then the next sentence dive deep into obscure e-commerce details. If you enjoy conversations with seasoned operators who love to get their hands dirty, you will love this episode. During our conversation, Maytab describes the dynamics within turnaround businesses, the risk-return profile of each of them, which mimics venture in many ways, how he finds companies, and some incredible stories about what he's discovered in declining e-commerce companies. Well, thank you, Maytab, for joining us. I'm excited to have you on the podcast and chat all things turnarounds and Carta and all, all these other projects that you've worked on throughout your, your life and career. I would love for, to hear a little bit about your background, but especially the guitar business that you had in college. I play guitar, not I haven't played in a while, but I played a lot in high school and college. And so that that's an instrument close to my heart. I'd love to hear a little bit about that business and then kind of other things you worked on through as you were a kid or in college and early on in your career. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Big fan of the podcast. I started off flipping guitars in college just as a nice way to try them out because a lot of these were not available from conventional music stores. So I started doing that, ended up building a fairly large community on Facebook back, back when organic reach was a lot better. So you could do something like that without any dollars, really. Built that to a couple hundred thousand users. We started partnering with guitar stores and brands to do semi-custom runs of specialized guitars. Obviously, these were easy to sell because they were collectible, etc. And we collected our affiliate commission or what amounted to an affiliate commission. It eventually became a little bit frustrated with how slowly some of these retailers were moving. So in response, we booted up our own retailer. And instead of holding inventory on our book, we actually allowed the community to basically pre-purchase inventory and then put it on commission with us. And we would sell it and they'd take a cut of the profit, if that makes sense. And that was a nice little way around any sort of securities rules. And the legal for it, this is really funny. The the lawyer was actually a community member that I bought and sold guitars with a little bit. And he was one of our moderators and, and just a big fan of the community. So he did the work for free. Nice. Always good to have a, a lawyer who's a good friend who can help you through a few things. Yeah, exactly. And then concurrently, I was involved with a men's hair product company, which is pretty funny because I'm Sikh. It was launched by a really good friend of mine. And, and I was one of the first people on board. Helped run that while concurrently launching another brand, a guitar pedal brand, which was much higher margin than the retail operation that we were running. The retail operation, mar- margin on guitars is not very good. They're fairly pricey, et cetera. So even though our holding cost of inventory wasn't significant, the guitar pedal business was fundamentally much better, especially because we were the brand as opposed to a retailer. And there's a lot more you can do with the brand. And you dropped out of college at some point in this, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was flipping guitars and I... I was making a strange amount of money, probably close to about 80000 a 100000 a year. And yeah, I, I looked at what college professors made and I decided, hey, this doesn't really make any sense. It's a pretty, that's a stupid way of running that analysis, by the way. I don't think I did it again, but it worked out. So, What, what would have been the better analysis going back to that decision that you would have made? I, I just don't think it's a good black and white way to look at something, right? Hey, my professor's making less than me. I should I should drop out. That's probably not a good way of thinking it through. So, not the best way. Yeah, 
What was the what were your classes in school? What was your major? It was psych, and I, I took a variety of classes. I think you have to take kind of general classes for the first two years, which is really annoying to me. I, I didn't really like the idea of having to take things that you're not interested in. So, no business or entrepreneur classes, though. I, I did take one entrepreneurship class, and I'm actually still good friends with the professor who taught it. I went back to speak a few times, and he actually almost bought his business with my first co-founders. We were initially launching something that's kind of like a search fund was our initial idea, and we were trying to buy his business. The deal fell through, but I'm still really good friends with him, and he pings me about co-invest sometimes. So, great guy. So you said you were going to launch a, a search vehicle. Was that Carta or was that something else? Yeah, it was basically... So I, I guess what happened for more color, I had accumulated a good amount of cash because some of these businesses had were throwing off decent free cash flow. My living costs were pretty low. Single male, no kids, etc. It's pretty hard not to have decent savings unless you're living some ridiculous lifestyle. So at, at the time, public markets were fairly expensive or I felt they were. In, in hindsight, obviously they weren't. So I started investing in private companies, did not really know what I was doing, went to go look for deal flow on Reddit of all places. And I met my business partners. One of them I still work with today. His name's Alex. Great guy. He had, he had quite a bit of hardcore turnaround experience. He bootstrapped the brand from zero to 10 million plus in two years when he was in his early 20s, sold that and then went to go work for CSC Generation, which is a fairly large private equity firm and turn around one of their assets, ice.com. And I, I still work with them today extensively. The other one, she was one of the first four engineers that Uber Eats. She did really well when they went public and retired. <laughs> I, I don't blame her at all. And the last one, I think he's running a search vehicle now. And yeah, I think he's more focused on the healthcare space, but still talk to him once in a while. Gotcha. So what kinds of deals did you get from Reddit then? I'm curious. Yeah. So one was a succulent company that Alex ended up allocating into. And we're still part of today. And then the other, the other ones, we're actually still in touch with a few of the founders. And the deals we ultimately did, I think we found two or three deals from there, primarily minority equity. And that was our initial thesis, was just making minority equity investments. It's kind of a loose angel group, if that makes sense. We weren't really doing anything too formal together. Eventually, Alex and I decided we really liked working with each other. And we spun that into something a little bit more formal. And that kind of became Carta, if that makes sense. And were those turnarounds at all? Um, no. So we made our first formal investment together in 2018, which was a minority equity investment. And then once we've really formalized the partnership, we made a control acquisition in Q4 of 2018. And that was our first turnaround together. And But that was his second or third. That was his second turnaround. So. When did you get a sense that you were on the right track with all of these DTC brands and you thought, hmm, maybe we can make turnarounds more of a main business for us. When did that start to click? Yeah, I, I guess we, we were kind of frustrated with some with some of the minority equity. We're, we're, I guess we're founders and entrepreneurs first, so we're always tempted to jump in, which is not necessarily a good thing as a minority equity investor. And we were fairly price sensitive, right? We weren't about to write a $2 million check. So being able to get operationally involved allowed us to pay a lot less for an asset. And I guess we figured out things were kind of going well. Our, our first investment together actually ended up being between a 10 and 12x within the first year, year and a half. So that kind of gave us enough fuel to go after the next few deals. And at the same time, that that other deal we did together did quite well as well. So 
we like the thesis, we still invest across minority and control positions. And it really depends more so on the type of deal than if it's control or minority. Was there anything that besides, it sounds like the returns from some early deals were really good, but was there anything else besides that that attracted you to some of these turnaround businesses versus buying or starting something that was more established? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an entrepreneur, you can run diligence a lot faster, or either that or an operator. You can run diligence a lot faster than someone with a traditional finance background. They have to bring in external consultants. They cannot build a 13-week cash flow that's accurate because they might not know the industry very well. So you can jump in and run diligence on something in two to six weeks. That would take someone else six to eight months to run, right? And in a turnaround situation, the longer you wait, A, the closer the asset gets to burning down, and B, the more you're going to pay for it in working capital requirements to reboot the brand. Yeah, so can you can we walk through the dynamics of a turnaround and just give us the big overview of what that looks like? Yeah, the, the biggest determinant of kind of how you enter is what the capital structure looks like, right? In a lot of cases, there's a senior secured upside down lender, and they're not in the business of running companies, right? They, they certainly do not want the equity, even if they they have access to it. So that tends to be a popular entry point for companies that are doing, let's say, upwards of 15, 20 million in revenue. We, we don't really like to go after anything that cannot be carved down to two, three million in EBITDA, if that makes sense. And that's just because the management layer is not there. It, it's going to be more work to buy something that's smaller and the check size does not materially differ. I guess it does to an extent, but not as much as you would think it would. And that's just because there's a shortage of operators on the bench available for a lot of these upside down creditors to access, if that makes sense. If you control a company that's really heavy in manufacturing, there's a lot of executives to pull from. If you try to do that with a D2C brand, you really won't find anyone. So it creates an interesting dynamic. Is that because there's just not a whole lot of large D2C brands that have been successful? Or what drives that dynamic where you can't find executives? Yeah, it's just a relatively new industry, right? It hasn't been around that long, really only since Warby Parker, Bonobos, Allbirds, etc. kind of came into existence. And even those companies are really not that old, right? Compared to something like a manufacturing business. Gotcha. So what are some of the most common reasons that an e-commerce brand will will go from maybe a growing business and become a turnaround? Like what drives that that change? Traditionally, it was incompetence, just like you see in any other turnaround situation where management doesn't really know what they're doing. Or you'll see this a lot too, even in vanilla LBO. The company's really done well in the first place because the founder was more of a product person. They didn't really want the product part. And that's what propelled the company forward. No other function has really done well. Eventually, that catches up to you, right? And it bites you. And for some companies, that's when they're doing 5 million. For other companies, it's when they're doing 50 million, depending on how strong product market fit was. What we've seen as of late is less incompetence and more issues caused by iOS changes, which is basically Apple's change to their privacy policies uh, hurting Facebook ad performance. And a lot of these D2C brands are very overweight on Facebook as a channel. You'll typically see somewhere between 60 to 90% of their ad spend focused on Facebook. So performance there dropped off really hard, which hurt, hurt these brands. And they were already going through an odd time because of the supply chain crisis. So container prices going up to 20,000, 24,000 a pop from that kind of 3,500 to $5,000 a pop range. That, that really hurt cash flow. And, and then iOS came in and, and hit it again. And then concurrently, a lot of these companies had scaled up operations to meet demand in 2020. 
And a lot of that demand kind of went down through 2021 and is continuing to drop in 2022. What kinds of companies that are in a turnaround situation are attractive to you versus ones you would still steer clear of? Yeah, we really still steer clear of any of the classic, I guess what people think of when you say e-commerce or D2C, which is something that's really more of a Facebook arbitrage business, right? Where for a while it was essentially free money because ads were so cheap and easy to run and they're more of a marketing company than an actual brand, right? So there's, there's no customer loyalty. There's no proven brand driving lower cost of acquisition, et cetera. We try to steer clear of that as much as possible, unless entry price justifies it. Our, our preference is for operationally complex businesses with a manufacturing component to them that primarily sell direct or could be sold direct. A good example of that is probably the succulent company, where it has 24 acres of farmland in the middle of nowhere, California, completely vertical, primarily selling through uh, marketplaces as well as B2B. Yeah, that succulent business sounds really interesting. My wife loves succulents. So she would love to see that farm one day. That's very cool. One thing you said earlier was you can do due diligence a lot quicker, especially faster than a traditional finance firm might be able to. First off, why is that? And then what does that due diligence look like when you do it? Mm -hmm. A is our in-house operating team and then our extensive experience as operators as well. So a good example of that might be the ability to dive into an ad account next day and see if it's underperforming because of management or because of a deeper core issue with product, right? And if you can delineate that, you know if there's an actual asset there worth purchasing. Because something might have strong product, but the marketing end might be poorly managed. And that's that's a buy on our end, right? As opposed to the opposite, where there's an issue with the core product, it's not really that great, and the marketing was previously well done, and it's clapped for whatever reason. So how do you figure out the nuance between those two? Because that seems like it could be... I could see that being a challenged, challenging thing to figure out whether it's a marketing or product issue. Is it a matter of just reading reviews or something like that of how the product actually works or something a little bit deeper? No, I, I can walk through a few different examples across a few different business functions. So we can start with marketing. A good example might be a company that's doing over 10 to 15 million in revenue, but does not have a clear approach to attribution. Attribution is how you, is essentially how you figure out which ad spend is driving revenue or which part of the customer journey, if that makes sense. And a lot of these brands are fairly amateur with their approach to it. And that's a dead giveaway that it's not being done correctly. That's probably the number one place to catch a bad marketer and delineate them from a, from a good marketer. And then on the finance side, we've seen things like extensive finance teams, but there's no 13-week cash flow model in place. And really, if you're a startup or you're distressed, you should have one in place. At the same time, just the way cash flow is managed, it's often fairly poor and there's room to unlock cash flow. That's always a bad sign. Uh, well, it's good for us, but it just means that it's being poorly done at the company. And, and given we're so familiar with the model uh, of D2C brands and kind of how they operate, what's normal, what's abnormal, et cetera, it's a lot easier for us to jump in and find a few red flags and, and pull at those. One other thing you mentioned was the the cost of entry for these businesses is fairly low. I think you even compared it to kind of the risk return profile of maybe a venture investment. Can you walk through kind of the low cost of entry, which I remember on our phone call was like deceptively small relative to like the size of business that you'd get if it was functioning properly. Can you kind of walk through that that thinking? Yeah. So 10 million in equity would probably buy you something doing, depending on how distressed it is, between 40 million to 120 million in top line, which is a lot more than it would buy you elsewhere. 
And again, a, a lot of this comes down to how desperate the lenders are. The, there's no one they can flip to cleanly. If you Google turnaround D2C, you won't find a single firm outside of us. There's maybe a small handful of upstream firms, but they're they're fairly specialized. For example, CSC Generation, which Alex used to work at, they've launched more of a kind of a home goods platform. They acquired Sur La Table as well as Z Gallery and a handful of other home-focused brands. So that's, that's the niche they play in fairly firmly and, and much larger brands doing kind of upwards of 500 million a year. So th- there's no real competition, which makes it a lot better than bidding on something that a million guys armed with an SBA loan are bidding on. And can you walk through the, the risk return versus venture a little bit more too? Mm-hmm. So the, the idea in venture really is you have 100 shots and hopefully one or two of those pays for the whole portfolio and more, right? The rest are more or less losers, break even, or a fairly good outcome for the founder, but not really the fund because they they really need 100x to get what they're looking for. And turnaround, you, you have a similar dynamic where you might expect something not to go well. We've been lucky we haven't had anything fail yet. I'm sure it'll happen, but uh, it's kind of the nature of investing in failing companies. But you, you have a similar dynamic where there's a lot of room for an asset to run and return upwards. Uh, we, we underwrite to 10x plus as an outcome, if that makes sense. We aim for 10x plus out within three years. We've been able to typically get there within one to two years, if that makes sense for our smaller deals. Obviously, it changes with more scale. We're not expecting to buy a company with a you know $40 million equity check and 10x that in two years. That'd be great, but I don't think that's reasonable. So that that's basically the similar dynamic where we can get larger outcomes and the cost of entry is quite low. A- again, for if you wanted to buy into a, a company that was growing and it had 10 million in ARR. You're probably looking at a valuation of 150 to 300 million, right? Versus being able to own the whole cap table of a distressed company to 100 million. Yeah, that's pretty. That's that's a pretty incredible difference there. And I want to dive into kind of what your playbook is for these turnarounds, but I want to first ask you a little bit about finding finding these companies and finding the best ones because it sounds like you're one of maybe maybe one of half a dozen maybe in total, who focus on distress, D to C, or maybe even fewer than that. I don't know what the number is, but it sounds like it's fairly small. I would imagine that gets you fairly decent deal flow for folks who have companies in that situation. But what are some ways that you find the the deals that work best for you when and filter through all these other deals that come through? Most of the deals we look at are brought to us by letters. There's a handful in particular that do a lot of e-commerce and D2C. So we, we have a fair amount of deal flow come to us through them. And again, they, they don't want to be involved in running the company. They'd rather just take a haircut and get out of the position for 10 cents, 30 cents on the dollar, right? At the same time, we get a lot of referrals from other private equity firms that are upstream or downstream where someone thought they were profitable. They came to them. The company's maybe doing 15, 25 million. And for whatever reason, they don't have accurate books. Um, the private equity firm runs diligence. They find out they're not really profitable and they get sent to us. That, that's a fairly common occurrence. I, I'm kind of surprised at how often it happens, but it does. There's a lot of failed venture-backed companies we look at as well. And those are referrals from venture capital firms. Typically, um, they want a graceful exit. They don't want to be perceived as not being founder-friendly. And, and that's a good source of deal flow. And concurrently, we're quite active in a few niche communities, like e-commerce feel. We get a fair amount of deal flow through those. That's pretty awesome. That's a really wide, widespread deal flow there. 
we used to do a lot of cold outreach. So we built a tool that would basically scrape a few specific data points on some of these brands, pulling data from builtwith.com, as well as a few, I think it was Ahrefs that we were using and their API. Uh, We'd scrape a few data points and then have someone pull their email address and then basically send out mass emails. And that worked really, really well. All right, so let's dive into a little bit of what you do when you close on one of these new turnaround deals. So it sounds like as it, within diligence, you kind of figure out a rough idea of what's gone wrong or what's not working. So day one of acquiring the business, what are some of the things you, you start doing and working on so that three years from now, you can have a close to 10x exit? Yeah, day one, we'll turn off the bank account and we'll typically have a new entity, new bank account, et cetera, all ready to go. There's just no point in draining it. We'd rather just kind of upset people and tell them to reach out to us so we can reapprove things. We establish new uh, new cadence with the management team or other employees there. So for example, manually approving anything over $250, $500. And the point of that is A, to control pointless expenditures, which there's always plenty for companies that are distressed, but more so to show that you're really serious about tightening um, tightening the, the outflow of cash. People take you a lot more seriously if uh, if you're telling them to manually approve a $250 expense, right? They, they won't take you as seriously if, you're, if nothing's really changed. If they have to come to you for every expense, they tend to justify it a little bit more. And there tends to be better rationale behind it instead of just, oh, yeah, let's grab it. Because that, that really adds up, right? You see it across every function. And it can get pretty dangerous quite quickly. So our, our, our real focus on entry is just cutting the bleed and stabilizing the asset. And, and I feel we've become good at this to the point where a turnaround we did in 2019, we probably could have do- got done what we did in six to eight months in two, three weeks uh, as far as cutting the bleed and being really aggressive uh, about doing that. So that, that's kind of stage one. Step two is always stabilizing the asset. And step three is kicking it back into growth mode. So just diving into step one a little bit more, what are, what are some expenses that you see frequently that are... there's? I'm sure there's some that are like obviously unnecessary, but I'm sure there's also a lot where maybe they thought they were necessary or thought they were useful that turn out to actually not have that great of a return. So what kind of falls in camp one where it's definitely unnecessary? And then what's like camp two where some folks might think it goes either way, but you have a an opinion on them? One of the first things we do to rationalize the people element and get rid of anyone that's toxic is we bring everyone in for an interview in the company. And this could take quite a bit of time. If you're looking at a company with 100 people, 100 people times 30 minutes, it, it adds up pretty quickly. But it it's really is the first thing we do to understand the company and get a better, a true full circle understanding of who's doing what, who's doing well, who's not doing well, who really cares about the company. In turnarounds, you'll end up with two groups of people. One is the um, kind of toxic group of people who really does nothing. They don't contribute to the company at all. And the other group are people that genuinely care and they're there because they really care about the company. Even if they've had to take pay cuts, they're, they're still there because they really, really care. And obviously you want to keep those people around. So we'll bring everyone for inter- in for interviews, ask them a, a few questions, make sure. We basically go through the GWC people analyzer, if you're familiar with those from EOS slash traction. And we have a few other questions we layer in. We try to get a feel for who they feel is doing a really good job, who's not, et cetera. We'll start diving through the numbers. A good example, we acquired a company in 2019 that I think had around 40, 50 employees. We cut that down to 20 within the first three days of being there. And productivity only fell by about 5% output. <laughs> to give you an idea of how crazy the numbers can get. I'll give you a really good example is customer service. There was a lady who was doing two tickets a day. 
And the average for a customer service rep was closer to 200 to 300. Wow, that's a so huge difference. I, <laughs> I brought it up and said, I don't understand what you're doing. Like, is your time going somewhere else? She said, no. And there was really no answer. She said, okay, great. <laughs> There's the door. Man, that's tough. Where some of those? Are you willing to share any questions that you found to be particularly effective at figuring out is this person like which camp this person falls into? Yeah, we asked them what went wrong. What do you feel is done well? What do you feel is not done well? And if you were in our position, what would you focus on in the first thirty days, and what would you focus on in the next one hundred eighty days? That tends to give you an idea of how capable people are, and if they've been thinking, and really for any position, if they've been thinking about the future of the company and how it can be improved if that makes sense, and how blocked they've been by their manager. Typically, management is most at fault, right? It's not the frontline employee that's packaging orders. It's not their fault. It's really the manager above them or two, three steps above them who's the um, source of problems. So So how do you evaluate managers then? That seems seems like a multi-sided thing where you have to figure out, is this person... Like all those same questions you ask everyone, you want to ask the manager too. But I would imagine also the the interviews you get from everyone who works under that manager probably also informs that manager's opinion, like your opinion of that manager a lot too. So how do you evaluate managers? The most amazing thing we noticed is that the opinions underneath people are always very, very consistent. So if someone has five direct reports that they're managing, four of those direct reports will probably have the same opinion of the manager. And it becomes very black and white. This whole exercise is a lot more black and white than I think people initially realized. One of the dead giveaways for us is what's the cadence of reporting? What numbers are you actually looking at on a regular basis? And what do you do when you notice the numbers trending in a certain way? And we'll ask them a few questions like, hey, we noticed that, let's say we're looking at the marketing side, efficiency um, as measured by spend revenue or MER has been dropping quite a bit over the last three months. What have you been doing to fix that? And if there isn't a good answer, we, we know it needs to happen, right? They're not adding tangible value. They're not paying for their seat. Interesting. So... Okay, so and then once you've found the the ideal team size for that company and maybe replaced a manager or two here and there as needed, what sorts of things do you do to now shift into growing this company? Mm-hmm. We, we generally find once you install EOS or scaling up, we, we like scaling up at any company with, with higher revenue per head. So if I was running something like a SaaS company, I would probably be using scaling up. If I'm running something that's more manufacturing heavy, EOS tends to make more sense because it's a faster and lighter install. And so once you install EOS, a lot of things just become apparent by way of looking at the scorecard, looking at the main levers in the business, et cetera. And, and a big part of it is shifting the mindset out of wartime mode into not what I would call peacetime, but more of a, a growthy wartime as opposed to defensive growth time, right? And just driving the team really hard, ensuring that incentives are aligned. There should be a strong bonus structure in place that rewards people for growth. We've had people, a good example, we had someone who was working for us in customer service. I think she was making $12 an hour. Within a year, she was making close to 70 to 85 uh, grand a year, which is pretty good for within a year, right? For someone who's in customer service. And I think she's on track to get to 100 or 120. I'm not too active in the asset anymore. But that's what we really look for is creating the incentive for people to keep performing and then we're happy to double down on them. Okay, so we have incentives for for team. What happens on the product sales or marketing side? What kind of changes do you make there typically? Yeah, I, I think one of the lowest hanging pieces of fruit is skew rationalization, especially for any company with a large amount of SKUs and a manufacturing component. Sometimes there will be, well, there almost always are SKUs that are 
strangely difficult to manufacture. Maybe they have long lead times for the components or a complex supply chain just for that SKU or group of SKUs. Um, if you're familiar with the Inner Six Sigma, a lot of those practices carry cleanly over even into marketing, but really we apply that logic into the kind of manufacturing, production, and product side of things quite quickly. And that tends to trim quite a bit of fat. A good example, there was a company we were involved with that was making frames, like wooden picture frames, for one specific SKU, but the frames would take way too long. It was something outrageous. I think it was four or five X cogs. And there's no real reason for them to exist. The, The owner previously felt it brought a lot of people to the website, but when you looked at the data, it really didn't. It didn't map out. And we have a matrix that we use and deploy on a regular basis. So, Can you talk about that matrix a little bit? How familiar are you with Lean? I'm familiar with the concept, but I'm not familiar with any of the details. Okay, great. Yeah. So there, there's a few different areas we basically evaluate a SKU across. A is the kind of production manufacturing supply chain side. What are your terms with the manufacturers you work with for that SKU, whether that's getting your BOM in? or the actual finished product, obviously it depends on the company, and then any sort of ancillary work you have to do once it gets to your facility. And again, this is for more of a production type business. And and then the space it takes up, right? And anything else that needs to go into it. On the marketing side, we're looking at kind of classic levers like turn rate, conversion rates, or how often that specific product appears in a cart. And that's just because you might accidentally cut something that's milk, right? Um, at a grocery store. Everyone goes there. Well, I don't think people really drink milk anymore, hopefully, but bread, right? (laughs) Let's call it bread. You go to, you go, you don't want to cut the bread by accident and suddenly you have no traffic coming into the website, right? Because it was a product that sure was kind of basically break even, but it it was bringing a lot of traffic to the website. So it's critical to make sure you don't cut those. We look at other things like margin, et cetera. There's more. I I can pull a list. I have one, but that's a high level overview. So on the on like the bread product idea, that's kind of interesting. How do you evaluate whether a product is like break even, but is like a bread product versus break even, and it's just some random thing that no one really buys that often? Yeah, that will usually the dead giveaway is you can get traffic that's looking for that product inexpensively to your website, and a lot of carts have that product inside of them. So probably the classic example of this is diapers.com. They famously were break-even or losing money on diapers and making their money off of the ancillary baby products that people would buy from the website. Are you able to see what order, like not just someone's cart, but in what order items were added to the cart? So you could see like the bread product was added first and then like a bunch of other stuff was added later? Yes, you can. It's really painful, but yes, you can. (laughs) I was going to say, that'd be kind of cool because you could see like what's the average like position of this product, like on average, it's added like the first or second like product in a cart, or it's like the third or fourth average added item to the cart or something like that. I imagine you could get pretty, if you had the the, the data, you could probably get pretty close to some interesting insights there. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a lot of things like even the merchandising on site in collections or just reorganizing things by gross profit per click, et cetera, can drive quite a bit of wins. A good example this one site we own where if the collection sort is, and by collection sort, I just mean um, following the established logic that the company came up with, usually some, something like gross profit per click with a few slots for testing new products. But so you, say you go to diapers on a website, on a retailer's website, right? In what order do the diapers appear? And where did diapers initially appear as category for you? 
and why, right? And diving into that merchandising. But with this specific company, we noticed, I think it was a 15 or $20 swing in average order value, which is really significant when, their orig- when the average order value was close to kind of $70, $80. So. And that was just driven by better merchandising. You won't see anyone really merchandising properly, typically, until you look at companies in the 30 to 50 million size range. Even then, a lot of times it's overlooked. I don't know why. Uh, we're really surprised when we see someone actually pay attention to merchandising. And what you brought up with the order in which things are brought to the cart, you probably will not hear anyone other than a CMO of a company doing uh, between 50 to 100 million mention that. I was really surprised you brought that up. It's like, you'd be really surprised. But anyways. Why is that? Is it just because they don't have enough of a, a, they don't have enough margin to build a team that can analyze that stuff? Or is it, is it just kind of, it's just still too early in that company's history and it's just been overlooked long enough that it's not shown up yet. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess for color, we typically look at bad companies, right? So uh, there's, True. there's usually someone incompetent at the helm and that's a big reason for it. But you're kind of surprised they could scale to that size without knowing what I feel is, I mean, you, you mentioned it and I, I don't think you're super deep in e-commerce and it, it's kind of a sign, right? That's That's interesting. What else are you usually surprised by that is either missing or not done well in any of these companies? I've seen everything from, you'll love this, a finance team where the accountants were not really using any software. So they weren't using anything like QuickBooks. It was a, I think, 12-person accounting team. And they were manually entering things in Excel, but they weren't using formulas. So instead of doing 2 plus 10 equals 12, right? Or sorry, well, in, the, in Excel, it be equals 2 plus 10. But... They, they were manually entering all the numbers and there was no formula usage at all. And that's why it was taking them 12 people instead of what was really honestly a one-person job. How could they possibly have done that accurately if you're not using formulas? I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it was that accurate. Yeah, like dollars and cents like would, would get messed up so quickly. Yeah, I really don't know. We just we didn't bother looking at it. We just built our own 13-week model, if that makes sense, uh, to get an idea of kind of the unit economics and the way the business truly worked. The financials are usually wrong, unfortunately. So, Well, was some of that done on paper too, or is that at least all in Excel? So at least you had some sort of digital copy. I think it was a mix. There's a bunch of red flags for that company. We asked for, when we asked for the formal financials, the guy sent us, tax returns, but he said he only did his financials once a year and he didn't really know what went into them. They just kind of showed up. And they were doing 30 or 40 million a year and they had no mobile website. And this is this is like very this is very recently. This is probably 2018, 2019. So there's no mobile website. And he was trying to figure out why revenue was going down. But you could see it correlate almost one to one with um, mobile device usage. This is all really easy to see in Google Analytics, by the way. Everyone's running it and it's free. And you can see the correlation one-to-one with mobile traffic increasing as a percentage of total traffic and essentially conversion rate taking a hit because there was no mobile website. You, you could not shop on it from your phone. So, Oh my gosh. And that's terrifying knowing that you'd only get financials once a year. Like you just have no clue until end of the year how you did. That, that just sounds terrifying. Any other interesting examples or stories you can share about wild things you've seen? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we had, this is one of my favorites. We acquired a company, one of the managers there, she was fairly solid. And it turned out she had an OnlyFans account. We found out because a customer had randomly emailed customer service about it to complain. 
And I don't know how that customer even knew this person worked for us. So I didn't really have an issue with it. Didn't really interfere with the work she was doing for us. I thought it was really funny and a bit of an odd problem. Never run into that before. We've seen things like that ranging to the previous owner of a distressed company we purchased coming in and screaming at employees, getting drunk in the middle of the day, et cetera. And another time we terminated someone who was just clearly not doing much and their wife threatened to kill one of the managers with a softball or something similar. I just remember I was out on a date or something similar. I looked at my phone and it was a text from our manager saying, hey, so-and-so threatened to kill me with a softball. I said, call the police. I don't, <laughs> I'll try to help you, but I can pull chat logs, whatever you need. But I, this is a good time to call the police. So. Oh my gosh. With a softball? Yeah. Yeah. They all played softball together. And apparently the wife's plan was to throw a softball really hard at this person's head when uh, she wasn't looking. So. You have to throw really hard, I imagine, or be extremely accurate. That seems like the... <laughs> I don't know. I just thought it was kind of comical. <laughs> um, what else was good? We've seen really, really everything. We had a someone threatened to shoot the place up when we acquired a different company in 2018. So obviously the cops were called, but yeah, all sorts of fun. Wow, that's nuts. Moving into some closing questions. What college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted? I think either history or entrepreneurship. What kind of history? Hmm. I'd probably go for something odd. <laughs> Maybe something a little bit more obscure. Like I, I really liked Southeast Asian history, specifically like some some of the island countries like Indonesia, etc. I had a lot of fun learning about those. What made it fun learning about them? Yeah, I, I didn't realize how unique unique those regions are, how far back they went, how many times they've kind of shifted hands, etc between a few major kind of cultures. And then they, they've always been major trade areas as well, which has made them a lot more interesting. Absolutely. On the entrepreneur class side, what would you, what would a class look like if you were to arrange it? Or what would your curriculum look like? Good question. Probably teaching people how to look at and think through business models before they dive in and create something. I think that was the biggest mistake with the guitar retailer, even though our fundamentals we weren't really paying for inventory, et cetera. The business was not nearly as profitable as the men's hair product company or the guitar pedal company just because of the way the margins played out, et cetera. And you don't really think through these things when you're a kid, but obviously the more margin you have, the easier it is to grow faster, right? If you're at 70 to 90% margin, you can reinvest in inventory much more feasibly than if you're at 20 to 30%. Um, and, and even if your margin, even if the inventory carrying costs are not significant, it still hurts the business quite a bit. So, Yeah, very true. What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? Good question. When I was very young, I used to think that everyone should become an entrepreneur, but then I realized that's actually not a very good idea and it's not suitable for most people. The the risk tolerance has to be there. What switched for you? Like what, what is there a moment or interaction you had that made that switch? Not really. I think I just realized most people don't they they're not comfortable with the same level of risk. And, and that's okay. I get it. And it works out better for me. So yeah, very true. What's the best business you've ever seen? My favorite business of all time that I've been trying to invest in since 2019 is Josh's Frogs. He's a friend of mine who I met through e-commerce fuel and he sells frogs online, which is honestly the best thing ever. They're very niche poison dart frogs. He sells plants and ancillary pet supplies, etc. Really cool business. You acquire the specialized poison dart frogs through him or other he sells everything cockroaches other various gross bugs and he literally farms them on site it's in the middle of nowhere michigan 
really cool business. And the dynamics are beautiful. It's, it's a real brand when you Google it. He, he's been in business for 20 years. No one's ever going to compete with you because it's such a hard product to stay on top of. A good example, I was watching a video of his on YouTube just for fun, facility walkthrough. And they were talking about breeding tadpoles. And some tadpoles cannot be put in the same container because they'll eat each other and other ones will not. But when you think about how many species of frogs they carry, you just have to think through a lot to keep that facility up and running. It's a really impressive business. Yeah, no kidding. How do you mail a frog? (laughs) This is really funny. He was explaining this to me. A lot of them die in transit and they had a really funny name for it. I think it was fatalities. It wasn't fatalities. It was something else. It was like errors or something, shipping transit errors or something. And it just cracked me up. But they have a very specific way of packaging their product. They actually look at where the product's being shipped to and the temperature range. And that's how they build out the guarantee for the customer. So if you want to send a frog from where he is in Michigan to somewhere really cold, they'll say no or they won't guarantee it. And they have... I watched the packaging video. They just had a bunch of special. I think they put a little heat pack inside of it, et cetera. So just a wildly interesting business with a very deep moat. Hopefully I'll be able to invest in one day. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Would the I imagine like the cockroaches or other weird specialty bugs could probably be used by like lab businesses or you know, biotech research companies. Is there what was like what was his customer base range? Was it mostly individuals or scientists, researchers, or what did it look what did the gambit look like? I think he was primarily selling to hobbyists. It's just a really cool business because they'll buy the frog from you, then they'll buy all the ancillary pet supplies from you to build like the the place to put your frog, the aquarium type thing. And then they will buy things like bugs, et cetera, on an ongoing basis from you. So that's your LTV component. And then it's all so niche that Chewy or PetSmart, et cetera, they, they can never hope to compete with you. It's just the math doesn't work for them. Gotcha. So the bugs were sold as food for the frogs then, mainly. Exactly. So you, so you might buy your poison dart frog and then a container of live cockroaches. I was thinking about buying a container of cockroaches for my business partner, but then I realized there was a 90% chance his wife would be opening it and I would get in trouble. So I, I didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. How Cockroaches are pretty big though. Like, do you... Compared to the frog, right? Like, I don't know. I didn't run through the numbers too much. I, I did watch a video on on, on uh, his YouTube channel. It's great. It's really entertaining. And there's a lot of um, similarities between that and the succulent company. For example, the succulents have to be shipped in the winter with little cute hand warmers on them to pre- prevent them from dying. And everything's air shipped. And there's a lot of unique kind of issues with the execution of the business that have to do with, with ops and fulfilling orders, etc. Yeah, walk through that one a little bit. That's clearly a really interesting one to you. What's what are some other favorite elements of that succulent business that you you like studying? Yeah, it, it keeps there's a very deep moat around it just because no one's gonna boot up a manufacturing facility in the middle of nowhere to grow succulents. The specific area it's in in California, it's it's so perfect for growing succulents that you don't need much in the way uh, past the coop houses and greenhouses. So the the actual capex is very low compared to what you would think of when you think industrial farming, right? And then fulfilling the orders is very difficult. So for example, if you get a, if Amazon merchandises you really extensively and you suddenly have 2000 orders to fulfill on a Monday and you didn't have anyone over the weekend to ship those, you, you have to go and pick those succulents from the farm they, they can't be pre-picked too much because they'll die, right? So you have to pick them from the farm and then get them into a package them and then ship them very, very quickly. So there's lots of unique considerations. When you think through 
inventory. Obviously, it's live, so your two-inch plants turn into four-inch plants in a two-week period over the summer. All, all sorts of fun things like that. So That's wild. That's crazy. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all about these, these wild businesses and uh, stories that you've had through turning companies around. This has been awesome. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you want to learn more about the Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better.